Good morning, afternoon, or night, whenever or wherever you happen to be. You're listening to Music in Theory, where we take deep dives into musical topics for listeners both nerdy and normal. I'm Brent Lawrence, and today we're having our second conversation with a gaggle of theorists. As in the previous conversation, I'm talking today with my friends Tyler Osborne and Michael Sabolsky, colleagues of mine at the University of Oregon. Today you'll hear more about what Tyler and Michael research independently. And again, if we get off in the weeds, I'll jump in to clarify things. As always, before we start, I'd like to ask for your support, especially since this is a new podcast. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever else. Our Facebook handle is at Pod and Twitter is at Music in Theory. Also check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash music in theory. I'll put all of this in the show notes, of course. Also feel free to leave me a review on iTunes, especially if it's five stars. But back to today's show. Tyler is going to talk about Fanny Hensel, who was the sister of famed German composer Felix Mendelssohn. Hensel wrote many beautiful art songs, among other things, which pushed the limits of tonality at the time. And Tyler's done a lot to resurface her work and transcribe manuscripts and lots of other cool things. Okay, so on to our conversation. Following the hand motions that just occurred, <laughs> um, I wish you guys could see that. <laughs> so my areas of research are 19th century German art song and 19th century form. And in doing so, I look primarily at the music of Fanny Hensel. Um, much of my time is spent digitizing archives of her handwritten manuscripts that are not yet published, examining those, finding idiosyncratic things to her particular compositional language. Um, looking at form as it differs from 18th century paradigms. Here you've heard Tyler bring up this idea of form, which is really just our music theory way of talking about the different elements of a piece of music and describing how a composer fits them together and whether that is normal or a way it's typically done for a time period or whether it's atypical for a time period. And this will tie into what Michael talks about, too, as we'll hear in a second. At that point, I'm going to pass it on to, to Michael. Hi. Um, I look at uh, more modern music because I'm afraid of dead people. <laughs> I'm Understandably said. No, I mean, gosh, they write such great music. Um, I, look at, <laughs> I look at more modern music. Um, I, as a guitarist, have had a lot of experience playing uh, rock music and, and as a younger adult getting into guitar and playing in, in some good bands and doing some stuff that was ex moderately, minimally successful. It was 
really fun to jam. It was really fun to improv. It was really fun to play solos. And so that was sort of the selfish ambition <laughs> behind uh, my own research. I look at the, I look at similar things to Tyler does, but in different music. I I look at form and how uh, songs are built, especially in jam band music, uh, Fish, Dave Matthews Band, and some of the others like the Grateful Dead, and, and also the sort of uh, connections between popular music and the avant-garde, understanding how, uh, you know, commercialism, the, the, the ugly beast, uh, plays into all of this. So for me, music theory uh, is at a very, <laughs> it's embarrassing to actually say it, but at a very sort of primary level is my own selfish, feeble, selfish attempt at trying to explain my own sort of moments of frisson when I listen to music and go, that was cool. What was it? I'm right there with you, though. Yeah, same. <laughs> like, yep. Like, and, and part of it is putting an instrument in my hands and going, I want to play that. And the other part is going, what am I playing? And so for me, I, you know, we're humans. I think humans uh, almost stereotypically like to group things. And so for me, it was trying to understand grouping structures and understanding that there are certain parts of popular music by some of these bands that are um, very much planned, very much accounted for. And then on other levels, the type of accounting was to allow for creativity to happen in the moment. Um, and I like the idea of sort of building a virtuosic justification for that. The idea that this music does sort of fit in a world that deserves to be talked about as sort of not similar to classical music, not similar to the, 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 the dead Europeans that wrote all the music that we study in our music history books, but as in this music has had and will continue and is continuing to have a fairly large effect on, on you know, current trends and pop culture at some level, more times, at other times more than it does now, of course. But in saying that, I really just wanted to look at the music for its sort of analytical merit and then just to really understand what the musicians are doing, what it means to actually improv, because there's there's a whole discussion there. There's the whole idea of like, well, what is improv? <laughs> and, <laughs> and just really wanting to dive into that and make sense of what I think in music we call style um, and sort of the fact that there are different trends that pop up within style and that when you look at bands that have been performing for decades at a time, the amount of music that they've produced both in the studio and in concert uh, it, live, you know, is just so large that you start to go, wow, there, there are distinct trends here. Well, that's got to be really interesting with someone like Dave Matthews' band because they record all of their performances, right? Or they, they have a number of yeah concert they, releases. They, 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 record, they record all their performances, and the fans record all their performances, which is sort of a, uh, analogous to the world of Grateful Dead and a fish, of course, this idea that the word of mouth that, that comes from, you know, letting fans tape the shows. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of these groups which I think is one of the other... <laughs> Bob Ross is feeding a small animal on the television in front of me right now, sorry. <laughs> we have Bob Ross going in the background. <laughs> is this on public television, or is this just like a YouTube loop? This is on Twitch. It's the live stream. Oh, we're actually watching it. I didn't realize that. I thought we were just making a joke about it. <laughs> sorry. So I, I guess... <laughs> life. So I guess, you know, yeah. I mean, a lot of the bands sort of gain their popularity by letting fans tape, their, tape the shows and sort of share the tapes freely. And, and sort of the ways that plays into commercialism, there's this whole like massive discussion of just like, you know, did you hear performance, blah, blah, blah from 1996? No, well, when they, when, the, you know, and so it builds sort of a brand loyalty. 
builds a following. And I think it's fascinating because it isn't just like they, they go in and, and these bands don't just go in and hit the boom box and the, the, the performances aren't exactly the same. And I always wondered why musicians don't discuss, they love discussing form. Theorists love discussing form, which I think is really cool and really important, but they don't discuss musicians who, who just sort of destroy. He, Bob Ross is playing with a fox right now. <laughs> you're you're going to have to edit all that out. But I didn't. <laughs> I think it's really cool because these musicians they don't just go in and, and um you know hit hit play on the on the the jukebox they every performance sounds different mm-hmm. and that that's interesting to me because different different things happen in the moment and, that, and I, I think that's interesting. Here we throw the ball back to Tyler to talk more about Fanny Hensel and the uh, lack of performances her works receive. Do you have something to say? I guess I should. <laughs> I think that's something that I'm a little bit envious about your field of study that I don't necessarily experience working with 19th century music, especially with Fanny Hensel, is of the recordings that exist, about 40 songs are recorded. Wow. And there are 262 vocal works out there. Uh, I guess that leaves 222 of which have probably not been heard by anybody perhaps since they were performed in her courtyard. Hmm. You really are a bit of a super sleuth because what you've done, I think you should pat yourself on the back, is you've been able to really catalog a lot of this music. And you were really one of the first. Uh, there have been a couple to have had cataloged before me, but I think this might be the first opportunity to publicly share a complete band of the vocal works. And next step after this is to do a complete band of the piano solo works. Because also, out of the 200 plus of those in publication are maybe 50 to 60. And there's just a lot of great music, in my opinion, out there that has sat in archives for 170 years um, with no eyes or ears on it. That seems like a bit of a crime to me. Oh, yeah. And it's like the majority of her catalog, too. Yeah. Which is yeah. crazy. It really, really is. I mean, how do you... I, I'm genuinely curious, because we've talked about this before, but like, how do you go about procuring... How do I say it? How do you go about procuring authentic, trustworthy transcriptions or uh, print copies of music that doesn't exist as a recording... And then what sort of experiences have you had dealing with maybe thinking you found the right one and then somebody else, give, you get another one and you go, wow, those are completely different. What the heck's going on here? That has certainly happened, fortunately, with or unfortunately. There's no good way to know that. Uh, with most of Hensel's music, it is written once. That's it. There are no edits. There are no other copies. It's in a notebook, written once, filed away. Um, wow. So most of the time, you have to take her at her word. Every now and then you go across something and go, that does not make a lick of sense. <laughs> but And then it comes to the, the musicological and performance practice ideas of, how much can you change this to make it make sense, or should you? Mm-hmm. Because there are some things that just are not within the harmonic language of the time that... You realize as soon as you touch it on the piano, it goes, ooh, 
what what in the world is going on here? Does it is it is it the case that it feels wrong to play or it feels it, it sounds wrong to the ears when a lot of the times she has a system of doing accidentals that occasionally is sloppy <laughs> from from modern eyes in the twenty first century looking at. We are in the twenty first century now. Um but sometimes I have to think back to that. <clears throat> but no, for for modernized to look at and see that one accidental anywhere in the measure carries through the measure. Doesn't matter if it's left hand, right hand, voice. If uh, there's an A flat somewhere, that A flat is in all voices wherever it appears. And sometimes that A flat is in the measure beforehand and anticipates the next measure. <laughs> and you go, A natural doesn't make a whole lot of sense here. There's one in that measure, and then there's one in the measure after it. Should it go there? So it's... It's hard to separate the what we have been trained with as theorists in that tool belt that we got in undergrad and our other schoolings and wondering, is this truly some kind of adventuresome harmonic thing that she's doing? Or is it this was a one-off manuscript that she wrote when she had a free couple minutes and it's not necessarily the most thorough? Who are we to say? So, And it could be in if those are like one-off uh, hastily notated manuscripts she could have been like oh well, i meant to write an a there wrote b instead i'll just not play it like i wrote it <laughs> yeah and i think another thing important to consider with aspects like that is considering her circumstances as a german woman in the 19th century um this wasn't necessarily music that was going to be published. Some of Hensel's works were actually published under her brother, Felix Mendelssohn's name. And also, if it was going to be played, it was probably going to be played by her. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter necessarily what she wrote down. She knew what she meant. And probably instinctively, that right note just came out because she knew what it was intended to be. Mm-hmm. From here, we talked about historical recordings and I spoke briefly to some research I've been doing on the Carter family. And then Tyler is again jumping back in with more thoughts on Hensel and wishing that there were historical recordings of her. I, I wish wish that with Hensel and the Schumanns and folks like that, we had the possibility of having references as such. That's color me jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... There, there. I suppose this all affects performance of the, the Hensel catalog, though, doesn't it? I mean, people do perform Fanny Hensel's music. Uh, a select number of the pieces, yes. Because they're they're known and they're done and they're just being sort of... There has been an established edition. Establishment yes. begets more. And so do you, do you find that there are people who make interpretive decisions that... I mean, I know that the community of Hensel scholarship is still... Is it safe to say in its infancy... Is that safe to say? I, I think that's fairly safe to say. Is, is it still so much in its infancy that what you have are people who are starting to make performance practice decisions that, that contradict what's on the page because it seems to make more sense to them with the, what they perceive to be their experience? And then from that, do you think new additions could be written that that would speak upon that? Sort of, sort of like adding sort of a living, breathing agency to the, to the, to the Fensel, Hansel music? Hensel. Uh, <clears throat> speaking to that, in looking at her manuscripts, she is sparing 
with interpretation. She's kind of like looking at Bach, well, <clears throat> excuse me, like looking at Bach organ music. Yeah. In that you are very rarely given any sort of registration cues. You're left to interpret as you will. Um, so many of her editions, even the ones that she published while living, had fairly minimal dynamics. So that leaves a whole lot of wow. inter- interpretation to performers. And so then there, there probably are performances that are, that are very different from another of the same pieces. Uh, certainly. And in looking at them and in playing them, you get certain ideas of how you like them. And then you hear a performance and go, ooh, why did you do that? And then you realize there's nothing on the page telling you not to do that. <laughs> right. Well, this so brings up an interesting point for me as a composer, because one of the big challenges I've had is that often people performing my music assume less about it than I think they will. So um, I guess for me, uh, since I come from like a popular music and jazz background more so than classical, if I write a line of eighth notes on a page and write forte and swing and it's for saxophone, I know what that's going to sound like and the performer knows what I'm looking for. But if I did the same thing for like via a violinist, they'd be really confused and they would need more instructions. <laughs> and it's just been an interesting challenge to deal with that because I've, there's different levels of interpretation and different music has different am- amounts of direction in it, I guess. No, totally. And <clears throat> one thing in looking at manuscripts that I will throw into that is occasionally looking at 19th century music, you see the hairpin crescendos. I don't know why I'm doing hand motions for that because <laughs> you got no visuals, but I, I am making, I liked it. I am making hand <laughs> motions for a hairpin crescendos right now. We're all doing it's, it now. <laughs> um, you should do it with and, us at home. Yes, play along. And occasionally in 19th century performance practice, that is recognized as an accelerate and decelerate notation. And in one known piece in Hensel's manuscripts, she makes specific note that that's what hairpins mean. Mm -hmm. No other ones that there are hairpins. So then that leaves you a little bit to wonder, do you take that with a grain of salt? It's piece uh, specific, or do you apply that to other pieces, especially within the same general time period? What, how, how do you answer that? What do you think? <clears throat> how do I answer that is I am not Fanny Hensel, so I'm, <laughs> I would be wary to make a judgment on that on paper. What Tyler's getting at here is that when you create a new edition, say going from a manuscript to modern notation, you want the composer's intentions to be reflected as much as possible. But in the case of performance, you can take more liberties. I think in performance, perhaps you can be more of a judge depending on time, space, how you feel at the moment in your interpretation. But if I were editor and there are hairpins, I would not, probably would not dare say to apply that same reasoning to other pieces right. just because we don't have enough information to say so. And if you're an editor and a publisher and she has a note like that in her manuscript, do you put that in the edition? Absolutely. Or I guess that's footnote material, possibly. Uh, I, I would 
if it were me personally not being an editor or a publisher. Not, not yet. But in, in thinking wistfully, as I tend to do, because we're music theorists. Um, <laughs> Name of today's episode is Thinking Wistfully. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking a gaggle of theorists. <laughs> I also like that. But is that no, what ducks are called? Geese. <laughs> geese. We should be a geese of theorists, and that would be even funnier. Sorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're all ducks. <laughs> At Oregon, especially. Um, quack. Yes, quack. But, no, I would, in an edition, print it exactly as she had it, same spot. Um, I would translate it, probably. <laughs> With it being in German. I- indeed. <laughs> I-, I would translate it, probably translate it in a footnote, even. Yeah. But as, as an editor, my, by my own standards, um, my my prerogative is to keep stuff accurate. Yeah. As to how she wrote it, even if that means putting a parenthesis around everything that I would interpret in it. But it's we have to go back to to the idea that Hensel or any composer wrote what they meant. Well, that's the show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please visit me on the web at patreon.com slash musicintheory or go to one of my social media profiles listed in the show notes. This podcast is written, recorded, and produced by me, Brent Lawrence, in my apartment's spare bedroom, which is currently located in Eugene, Oregon. Again, special thanks to Michael and Tyler for joining me. I had a blast on both of these episodes. I hope you'll tune in next time. But until then, keep listening. This has been Music in Theory.